Well, good morning, Central West End Church. It is great to be with you. I would say it's great to see you, except I'm looking at a camera lens instead of at you. But that makes me all the more grateful uh, that even in a time like this, we have technology that makes it possible for us to be together. And what a time it is. You know, the uncertainty, the distress, the fear, the anxiety, the loneliness, perhaps, that many of you are experiencing. This is indeed a unique time. And I want you to know that our leadership team spent a lot of time in prayer and conversation over the decision to suspend public worship. Uh, but we do deeply believe that doing so right now is an act of love and compassion toward our neighbors. I also want you to know that I've been praying for you all this morning, and I will continue to do so. I've actually been thinking and praying a lot this week about what it looks like for us to be the church at a time like this. So please check back frequently here on the website and also on our Facebook page for developments as we think about ways to continue seeking a city made new by the gospel. Uh, which brings us to our sermon this morning. We're in a series on the vision of Central West End Church. Um, so I invite you maybe to uh, press pause right now, grab your Bible, grab a cup of coffee or, or a cup of tea, and then uh, come on back and join me. We're going to read this morning's scripture together, and then we're going to dig right in. This morning's scripture uh, comes to us from the book of Romans, and we're going to be reading in chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. Let me read this for us. Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to abound? Uh, I'm sorry, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin? because we are not under law, but under grace, by no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, 
which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Friends, this is God's word. Um, if you've been with us, you know that we are in a series on the vision of Central West End Church. Our vision is to see a city made new by the gospel, spiritually, socially, and culturally. The true and only power that can really bring renewal to the world is the gospel. And because the gospel is so foundational for everything we do here at the church, we're actually spending the first three weeks of this series just looking at the gospel. Now, last week, we saw that the heart of the gospel is God's radical grace. That means that God does not love you or accept you because of your merit, uh, your goodness, your performance. It's not because of anything you do, but because of what Jesus has done for you. But that leads to a huge question. And the question is, if God saves us by grace, okay, completely apart from anything we do, then why not live however you want? Why bother trying to change your life? Why bother making any effort to be a better person? Or as the Apostle Paul puts it in this passage, he asks the question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, if the more we sin, then the more God pours out grace. And, you know, grace is good, right? We want more grace in the world. Well, then why not sin more and more so that there will be more grace in the world? It sounds like a reasonable question. Uh, in fact, Paul takes the question seriously. Uh, one of the ways you know that you're really hearing the gospel of grace is that it elicits this question. Paul actually asks it twice himself in this passage, once in verse 1 and again in verse 15. But notice both of those times, uh, basically Paul's response is, don't you know? Don't you know? In other words, it's a reasonable question, but if you're asking it, Paul is saying, you don't understand the gospel. Don't you know, he's saying, that the more you really understand the gospel of grace, the more you'll see that far from leaving you unchanged, the gospel of grace should actually be transforming every area of your life. That's what Paul is talking about here. If the grace of God has really burst into your life, then it's not just a little tweak here or a little tweak there, but an utter, total, radical transformation of your whole being. And that's a big deal. You know, people want to live transformed lives. Uh, there's big money in that right now. People are hungry for that. There are books, conferences, YouTube videos, uh, life coaching, uh, all kinds of resources out there to help you identify and to achieve your personal transformation goals. Paul is saying, do you want that? If so, it's available to you, but you're not going to find it in a YouTube video. The only place you'll find real transformation is in the gospel. How? Well, Paul says we have to take three steps. There's the step from spiritual slavery to spiritual life to spiritual transformation. So let's look at each one of those steps together this morning. First, spiritual slavery. If you look at the very last paragraph in verses 15 and 16, Paul says, are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know, he says, that if you present yourselves to anyone 
as obedient slaves that you are slaves of the one whom you obey? So there's the question, right? Hey, if God loves us and saves us by grace, then why not just sin as much as you want? This is one of those places where Paul says, don't you know? So if you look at verse 16, don't you know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Now, what's Paul talking about? You know, it's actually a little difficult for us because when we hear the word slavery, our only context for that word is the slavery that was practiced here in America. But in the ancient world, there were actually many different forms of slavery and many different ways of becoming a slave. And without a doubt, all of them were horrible. They were all to be condemned. But one of the main ways back then that you could become a slave was if you fell into poverty or if you fell into debt, then you would sell yourself, offer yourself willingly into slavery in order to get food and shelter or in order to pay back your debt. It was a willing offering of yourself into slavery in return for some benefit or protection. Paul is saying that's a picture of spiritual reality. He's saying every single person in the world willingly offers themselves to one kind of spiritual master or another. Either you offer yourself to God or you offer yourself to something else, but there's no such thing as not serving something spiritually. Now, what does that mean? Well, look at your own lives. You know, everybody lives for something. Everybody has something in their life that we look to and we say, oh, this is how I know I matter. This is how I get a sense of security and significance and worth and value. You see, everybody lives for something. Uh, it might be your career. It might be money. It might be romance or your family or politics or your looks. It might be being a good person. It might be being needed or being the best or unique or in control. Um, it could be a lot of things, but everybody has something in their life that it, this is the main way you get security and significance. You know, this is actually one of the bedrock foundational uh, realities of human experience. And here's the thing. The fact that we experience this uh, so deeply is powerful evidence of the spiritual nature of humanity. So, for instance, Howard Thurman was an African-American scholar who was also one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century. Uh, he was actually Martin Luther King's spiritual mentor. In 1947, uh, Howard Thurman gave a lecture at Harvard University on the significance of African-American spirituals. These were songs that were sung by slaves who had come to faith in Jesus, songs that actually affirmed their significance and their dignity as human beings. But why? In the lecture, Howard Thurman says, well, think about the reality of their lives. The slave was a tool, a thing, a utility, a commodity, but he was not a person. If a slave were killed, it was merely a property loss, a matter of bookkeeping. To live constantly in such a climate makes the struggle for essential human dignity unbearably desperate. That's what Howard Thurman said. Now, do you hear what he's saying? In the world's eyes, the slave was not a human being with inherent worth, dignity, and value. A slave was nothing more than a tool or a commodity. It was a thing. Now, in our culture, of course, we find that abhorrent. We say, well, every human being has inherent worth, 
dignity and value. But why do we say that? If there is no God, if this world is all there is, then human beings are nothing more than a bag of chemicals. We're nothing more than the result of a mindless, unguided, natural process. So if that's true, then our hunger for worth, dignity, and value is a mere illusion. But think about it. If it's not an illusion, and I have never met anyone who's willing to actually say that, then human beings are more than merely natural beings. We're spiritual beings, which means that we're all going to live for something to give our lives meaning and significance. You see, there's no such thing as not living for something, which means that there's no such thing as not serving something, which means there is no such thing as not worshiping something. To live for something is to worship something. Paul is saying, you are going to have a spiritual master. You are going to have some kind of spiritual master in your life, and whatever it is, it will control you. And if it's anything other than God, it will demand more and more from you while giving you less and less in return. And Paul is saying, you have to understand that uh, if you are not willingly offering yourself to God, then you're willingly offering yourself to something else. You are in spiritual slavery. And if you want to know what this looks like, look at verse 12. Paul says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Now that word passions is also translated lusts or desires or evil desires. And a lot of times it's easy to think that that's only talking about sexual desire or sexual passion. Uh, but it's not. The word there literally means over-desire, or uh, I, I often like to think of it as desire in overdrive. Paul isn't talking about um, a normal-sized desire for bad things. Uh, he's talking about an oversized desire for really, really good things. So if you remember last week, we were talking about sin. A simple definition of sin is sin is not necessarily doing bad things. Sin is, is seeking really good things apart from God. It, sin is when you make something or anything in your life more important than God. You are going to worship something. And if it's anything other than God, Paul is saying it's your spiritual master. Now, you know what that does to you? One way to find out what your spiritual masters are is to look at your emotions. If you're, uh, for instance, if you're prevented from getting something you really want, or if it's taken from you, then it's natural to be angry. You're going to be upset. But if you're inordinately angry, if you fly into a rage, that is a sign that whatever was lost or threatened is a spiritual master. Or um, if something you love is threatened or taken away, it's natural to be afraid. But if you're driven by anxiety over it, if you can't stop thinking about it, if it's just eating away at you, that is a sign of a spiritual master in your life. It's punishing you. Or lastly, you know, if something you love is threatened or taken away, it's also natural to be sad. But if you're devastated, you see, if you, if you just can't get over it, if you feel like life can't go on, that is a sign of a spiritual master in your life. Do you see how this works? Anger, fear, sadness, grief, those are natural emotions. But when those things eat away at you, when they hound you and drive you and oppress you, that's what a master does. That's what a slave driver does. So for instance, I am really hoping and praying that we can make it through this outbreak 
we're experiencing with as little loss as possible, we're all praying for that. And I want to be careful. I want to be sensitive. But understand, a time like this in our world, it reveals so much about what we're really living for, about what our true spiritual masters are, about what it is we really worship. Um, Paul is showing us here that the first step in transformation is recognizing our spiritual slavery. But that leads to the second step, from spiritual slavery to spiritual life. Now, here's what this means. Let's come back to our question. If God saves us by grace, then why not live however you want? At the beginning of this passage, that is the exact question that Paul is addressing. So if you look at verse 1, he says, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, why not live however you want? In the next several verses, Paul walks us through the answer to this question. Beginning in verse 3, he says, Don't you know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, here's what this means. First, uh, when Paul talks about those of us who have been baptized, he's talking about every Christian. Uh, baptism is another way of talking about conversion or of becoming a Christian. Uh, John Stott was a great English preacher and scholar of the last century. He says that baptism, it's kind of like a wedding ring. When you get married, the ring is a sign of your commitment, um, of your whole self. It's a, it's, a, it's a sign of your offering of yourself uh, to your beloved. It's more than just saying, hey, I love you and I want to hang out with you. Uh, Getting married is a way of saying, I give all of myself to you. But notice what Paul says about this. If you're a Christian, okay, if you've been baptized, you've been converted, you've become a Christian, then he's saying, what is true of you? Look at verse 5. He says, if we have been united with Jesus in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, I want to really press into this. Paul is saying, that the defining aspect of being a Christian is you are united with Christ. You're united with him. And that word united is an amazing word. In the original language, literally that word means implanted. It's, it's like taking a little green sprout and, and literally planting it in the earth. You have been planted in Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means two huge things. And the first one is this. Being united with Christ means that everything that's true of him now becomes true of you. That just as Jesus Christ was crucified, died, and was buried, that you were crucified, died, and were buried with him. That means that when God looks at you, it's as if you did everything that Jesus did. So the perfect life that he lived, it's as if you lived it. Or the death he died to pay the penalty for all the evil and injustice in the world and in your life. It's as if you died and paid that penalty. Again, go back to the wedding analogy. If you marry someone who's fabulously wealthy, even though you did nothing to earn that wealth, the moment the ring goes on the finger, you know, the moment you say, I do, all of that wealth immediately gets credited to your account. It is a transaction that has been accomplished for you. Paul is saying in the same way, everything Jesus accomplished, legally it becomes true of you. 
So even though you did nothing to earn it, Jesus accomplished it for you by grace. It's a transaction accomplished for you. That's the first thing Paul is showing us about what it means to be united to Christ. And obviously, we talk a lot about that here at Central West End Church, and rightfully so. It's the heart of the gospel. We're saved by grace. But there's another huge thing that Paul is showing us here about what it means to be united to Christ. And if we miss it, then we only have half a gospel. Um, and here's what, how I want to get at this one. Dallas Willard was one of the greatest Christian writers and thinkers of the 20th century. Uh, Dallas talks a lot about this in his most famous book, The Divine Conspiracy. Um, in fact, he gets at it by talking about that famous bumper sticker. I, I haven't actually seen one of these in a long time, but maybe you have. They used to be all over the place. Did you ever see the bumper sticker that said, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven? Dallas Willard says, he asks the question, he says, wait, just forgiven? Is that all a Christian is? Forgiven? Because if that's all it is, then it doesn't matter what your life is like. It doesn't matter how you live. Uh, Dallas Willard describes that as barcode faith. It's kind of like when you check out at the grocery store. You, you know how this works. The only thing the scanner responds to is the barcode. It doesn't matter what's in the package. If the sticker on the package says ice cream, it doesn't matter if the package is full of dog food. As far as the scanner is concerned, that dog food is ice cream. Dallas Willard says, we often think of Christianity in the same way. As long as you say a certain prayer with certain words in just the right way, in just the right order, or as long as you believe just the right things about Jesus Christ, then it doesn't matter what's in your life. Um, you've got the right sticker on you. The scanner scans the barcode, and therefore God cannot keep you out of his kingdom. But then Dallas Willard goes through the rest of the book, pressing the message that Paul is pressing on us here, the message that Christianity is more than just forgiveness. So look at how Paul puts this. In verse 4, he says, We were buried, therefore, with him, that's Jesus, by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, let's follow the logic of the thought here. We were buried with Jesus, Paul says. But why? What's the point of that? Well, look at how he puts it. He says, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. That means the whole point, the whole purpose, the whole goal of everything Jesus did was so that we might walk in newness of life. Now, here's the question. Whose life? It'd be easy to think, well, my life. I'm the one who has to live a new kind of life. I'm the one who actually has to put all of this into practice. Now, that's true, uh, and we're going to talk a lot more about that in just a second. But, but we really need to drill down on this. When Paul talks about newness of life, he's talking about the life of Jesus. He's saying the very life of God the, the God who created the world, who is redeeming the world, the, the God who one day will renew and restore not just the whole world, but the whole universe. He's saying that the life of that God, Jesus, has actually come into us. 
that what it means to be united with him is to be planted together with him. It means that we are planted in him so that legally speaking, everything he did gets credited to us. But this life is also planted in us so that we are able to start living the same kind of life that he lived. And here's what this means. It means that the gospel is not just a transaction that's accomplished for you. It is that. And that's very important, but the gospel is not only a transaction that is accomplished for you. The gospel is a life that is implanted within you. That's newness of life. And um, it's his life in you, in me, in all of us. And that leads to our last step. We've seen the step from spiritual slavery to spiritual life. But lastly, Paul leads us through the step of spiritual transformation. Because now we can come back to our original question, but we see the question's changed. The question really is not, well, if God saves us by grace, then why not live however we want? The real question is, if the life of Jesus has been implanted inside of us, then how should we cultivate that life? I mean, think about what this looks like in other areas of your life. So for instance, you know, everyone is born with certain gifts and talents. So if, if you're born with a gift for music, or athletics, or math, or cooking, or gardening, or strategic thinking, or macrame, I don't know, whatever it might be. Uh, whatever gift you're born with, you still have to practice and work at cultivating that gift. And if you don't do that, the gift goes to waste. You see, your effort in cultivating that gift is the proper response to that gift. And understand, it doesn't mean that you earned the gift. It's still a gift. It still comes to you by grace. But the proper use of the gift is that it demands that you make an effort to cultivate it. And again, Dallas Willard, I love the way he put this. Um, he was so brilliant. He said, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. So if the life of Jesus has been implanted inside of us, then what do we do with that gift? We're actually going to spend the rest of our series talking about that. But in this passage, Paul shows us two big things that we're supposed to do, one with our mind and one with our body, okay? First, with our mind. In verse 10, Paul says, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, consider your union with Christ. Um, consider, remember, recall with your mind that you have new life inside of you. Or to go back to our wedding analogy one last time, John Stott put it perfectly. Uh, he said, uh, think about it. Can a married woman live as though she were still single? Well, yes, I suppose she could do that. It's not impossible. But let her remember who she is. Let her feel her wedding ring, the symbol of her new life, of union with her husband, and she will want to live accordingly. In the same way, John Stott says, can Christians live as though they were still in their sins? Well, yes, I suppose they could, at least for a while. It's not impossible, but let them remember who they are. Let them recall their baptism. Let them feel their wedding ring, the symbol of their new life of union with Christ, and they will want to live accordingly. Paul is saying, remember who you are. 
consider the new identity that you have in Christ. So for instance, part of our regular prayer life should be thanking Jesus for his life, not just giving his life for us on the cross, but planting his life inside of us, meditating on that, dwelling on that, that, that the gospel is not just a transaction accomplished for you, it is a new life that's implanted inside of you. That's the first thing we do, and it's with our mind. But secondly, uh, we cultivate the gift of new life with our body. So in verse 13, Paul says, Do not present your members uh, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now, when Paul talks about our members, that's kind of an odd word in this context, but basically that word means the different parts of our body. It, our eyes, our hands, our feet, um, but it also means our physical capacities, things like our thoughts, our emotions, our wills. Paul is saying that our bodies are the way that we engage the world. And I think, you know, maybe that's kind of a no-brainer to say it, but our bodies are the instruments through which we live our lives in this world. So Paul is saying, offer your body to God. Willingly offer your body to him as instruments for righteousness. Um, in fact, that word instruments is a word that could also mean a tool or even a, a weapon. In other words, spiritual transformation is not just something that happens in your mind or in your heart. It's embodied. Jesus's life was full of embodied practices that shaped him and strengthened him. And so think about it. If Jesus needed those practices, how much more do we? And specifically, I'm talking about spiritual disciplines, things like prayer, fasting, solitude, silence, worship, serving other people, things like that. Those are things you do with your body that create space in your life for God to work. And that's what spiritual disciplines are. Spiritual disciplines are practices you do with your body that create space in your life for God to nurture and nourish the life that he's already implanted inside of you and thereby to transform you. So first, we consider our union with him. Second, we offer our bodies to him in spiritual disciplines. And the reason that we can do those things, friends, is because Jesus has already done them for us. Remember, on the cross, what was Jesus doing? Jesus considered you. He, he couldn't stop thinking about you. I mean, what do you think held him there on the cross? He was basically feeling his wedding ring. You know what he was doing? He was offering himself to you. The reason you can offer yourself willingly to him is because he's already offered himself to you. And when he rose from the dead, he rose physically with an indestructible life that means that death is defeated, and so spiritual transformation always involves the body because spiritual life is implanted in your body. Dear ones, the gospel is not just a transaction that is accomplished for you. It is a life, a new life, the life of Jesus that is implanted within you, and that is good news. Let's use our bodies in the days, in the weeks, and um, possibly even in the months to come in ways that manifest that life to the world around us and also that manifest the sacrificial love that makes that life possible. You know, I really believe that right now is an incredible opportunity for the church. 
You know, we never wish or hope for events like this past week to occur, but it is precisely events like this that do not create a hunger for God in people's hearts. It is events like this that reveal the hunger for God that's always been there. May we be a church that stands ready to meet that hunger. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning for the new life that you have given us in Jesus. Lord, we pray that you will help us to remember with our minds and to practice with our bodies, uh, not just that the gospel is, uh, is only a transaction accomplished for us, but that it is a new life that has been implanted within us. We pray that you would help us to consider that with our minds, to practice it with our bodies, and to take hold of the life that has been implanted in us, not just for our own spiritual transformation, but Father, even more for the spiritual, social, and cultural transformation of the whole world around us. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Dear ones, the church throughout history has often been a creative minority that somehow manages to thrive and to grow when the rest of the world is falling apart. Um, and of course, we know the reason. It's the life of Jesus implanted within us, uh, filling us with gospel resilience. We very much have a mission in the world right now. The church is here to stay. And so I want to encourage you all, let's participate in this together. Uh, we're going to be in touch with you. I can't wait to see you personally. But until then, wash those hands, keep your distance, and we'll talk to you soon. God bless and have a great week.